Lord, thank you for your grace and love. We worship you. We love you. We pray your hand be upon us, Lord. You would just instruct us. Lord, we be like the men of Issachar who knew the day they lived in and how to live, Lord. And so, Lord, um, allow your spirit to just minister to us and that we would be open to that which uh, is necessary for our own life, Lord. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Why don't you turn the book of Revelation chapter 2, please. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. The message entitled, The Loveless Church of Ephesus. As we begin our study of the seven churches, we've seen the two messages of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. Now we uh, will be seeing the Lord's instructions, His warning, and His exhortations to His church. And hopefully you and I will have no doubt as to what Jesus Christ thinks, demands, and expects of His church today. And I say this very critically, and I think the seven messages are very important because the church is changing so much. There are those in the church from within the church that are corrupting the church, redefining Christianity, what a Christian is, and everything else. And you need to understand this. You need to check everything through the Word of God. The seven churches present four things, and this is uh, straight across all seven of them. They are actual churches that existed in John's day, each of them. Second, they each represent a period of church history, and we'll point that out to you. Thirdly, a type of congregation that can exist through the church age, from Pentecost to the tribulation, and then also a type of Christian that can exist through this period of church age. And you can take that test this morning. What type of Christian are you, and what kind of church are you in? You get to take the test, you get to correct your own test, and you will find out who you are according to the messages of the seven churches. And so, there's also a very um, known pattern that is consistent. Many have used it, and then, rather than trying to vent another one, it's very clear, very simple. In all of these churches, there is the proclamation, the commendation, then the condemnation, the exhortation, and the application. The first three churches are called to give ear before the promise, the last four after the promise, and we'll deal with that as we move through. Uh, there are only two exceptions to the rebuke. Smyrna, the suffering church, and Philadelphia, the missionary church. Because when you're suffering for Jesus and you're busy for Jesus, you don't have time to mess with petty stuff or get in trouble or be in sin. Simple. Okay? Now, we want to begin by looking at a historical background with information about... Um, Ephesus, so that because the letter is written with this backdrop, so we can better associate and identify what it is. Um, the city of Ephesus, um, the name Ephesus means desirable. This is relationship to God, not to you and I, but to God. The city of Pergamos was the capital, but Ephesus was recognized because of the location and its influence. Um, it had over um, a quarter of a million people in population, not a small city. Uh, in 133 B.C., Adelaus III bequeathed the kingdom of Pergamos uh, to the Roman Empire. And the city was important due to its being an export center uh, for caravans and landing for Rome. It was located in the mouth of the River Caister. And uh, it had a magnificent avenue, 35 feet wide, lined up with columns and led all the way from the harbor into the city. Very impressive. Uh, the Roman proconsular had uh, to disembark at Ephesus to enter his province there. So it was a very uh, high uh, honored and privileged city. All the trade and 
travelers from the Kaiser and Meander Valley, uh, Galatia, Euphrates, and the Mesopotamia, they came through Ephesus. It's called the highway to Rome. It was it. It was very busy, uh, commerce. It's almost like the, uh, um, the King's Highway over in the Jordan side and the Via Maris over on Israel's side. Very uh, strategic areas, very busy. Now, Strabo, the ancient geographer, called it the market of Asia. And the Romans called it the light of Asia. Um, it was a birthplace of Homer also. And later on, the Christians were persecuted and they, um, the believers were thrown to the lions, as you know. And um, for that reason, they were brought through Ephesus. So um, Ignatius called it the highway of martyrs. Ephesus was a free city because of the service, uh, service to Rome. And therefore, it had enjoyed a certain type of emancipation. The city had no garrisons posted there. And the people uh, were ruled by their own doing because of the extension of Rome. So uh, they had their own courts, their own assemblies. And Acts chapter 19, when the riot broke out, gives us the backdrop of that, that they experienced this privilege. The city had a great deal of luxury, too. Uh, I was there in 1995 through the seven churches. And uh, Ephesus is one of the best there's another one that's so-so, but the rest, they're not, there's nothing even around them. But it had um, um, luxurious uh, theaters, uh, bathhouses, libraries, marble streets. On the I mean, everything. Incredible. Uh, running water uh, in the houses. Uh, public toilets were running water. Different things. It was a, a very wealthy, very luxurious. It's a port city. Um, some of you have been to Israel with us and you've seen some of the digs that they bring up of Roman cities and they set them back up and just incredible. Now the city was the center of uh, pagan superstition also as we see in chapter 19 of Acts and the riot. So the city was very prosperous, very luxurious, uh, a very key one. And the, the church of Ephesus, as you know, was founded by Paul in Acts chapter 18, 19 and 20. And the Holy Spirit forbade Paul in Acts 16.6 to preach in, in Asia Minor. And he receives a vision from the man Macedonia and told him, come over and help us. And in Acts 16.7-10, through 10, he went down to Philippi. He saw there Lydia, other women by the riverside. They opened their heart to the Lord. And then um, he uh, was put in the position of exercising this young woman who was demon-possessed. And when the, um, her master saw that their game was gone, they accused Paul and Silas. They beat him publicly. They threw him in jail. At midnight, an earthquake happened. The gates opened up. The jailer was ready to kill himself. He says, do yourself no harm. And uh, then he said, what must I do to be saved? He repented. His whole family was saved. And then Paul moved on to Thessalonica where he preached in the synagogue. And, um, um, but again, trouble broke out. They were rushed down to Berea, and then those from Thessalonica went down and continued to persecute them. So Silas um, and Timothy remained there where Paul was ushered over to Athens, and there he preached in the synagogue, and then, then to Mars Hill, to the Epicureans, and to the Stoics in Acts 17. See, if Paul had, um, had to make application to the majority of churches today, they would never hire him. He would have to say, well, everywhere I go, I cause trouble. Uh, I'm always put in jail, and... Uh, what a different from our ministers and different things in our society today. We have tweaked the church to a Western mindset that's not even recognizable to the scriptures. 
And then Paul left by way of Ephesus, where uh, he left Aquila and Priscilla there to establish the church. And um, he went back to Antioch. Then he returned on his third missionary journey in Acts 19, 8 through 10. And um, he preached uh, for about three months in the synagogue and then two years in the school of Tyrannus. A total of three years there in Acts 20, 31. But it was a very, very, very... Um, prosperous ministry in terms of preaching the gospel. In fact, Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle said, uh, um, an effectual door has been opened up to me. There are many adversaries. <laughs> Today people say, oh man, God's opened the doors. Man, our plane, our, 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 our plane reservation went through. Our hotel's good. They're picking us up. No attack. Paul would say, what ministry do you have? He looked at it the other way. If God's in it, there's people going to be upset. Lives are going to be changed. So the gospel's tweaked today in many different ways. It was a religious city. The religion of Ephesus, Diana's fertility goddess, Artemis, either name. And a multi-breasted um, statue that fell from Jupiter. 1935 of Acts tells us, an uh, um, ugly thing. And uh, anyway, uh, she had a treasure city, a museum, the priestesses who, like the Corinthians, were prostitutes to build, build revenue. And the temple was also a refuge city for all criminals. So a city rose up next to it, as usually uh, religions are a refuge city for many criminals, sometimes uh, harboring them against uh, from the law. And um, you'd be surprised... Um, that um, the Catholic Church has done so much of this during the Hitler movement. Uh, the Pope and Hitler were very, very good par partners and friends. And he's the one who took many of the Nazis from out of Germany into Central and South America and Mexico. Okay? Because the Jews uh, don't like, the, the Catholic Church doesn't like the, church, the Jews a lot because the Jews crucified Jesus. Okay? Might be a shock to you, but don't. If you're an ex-Catholic, you're just ignorant of it. But that's the fact, Jack. And uh, as we go through... Pergamos and Thyatira will be giving you some other stuff which may upset you. But, you know, I, I'm like Paul. I'm, I'm known for this. So it's just the way it is. Um, I, want, I don't want to keep you ignorant from history. I want to show you history what it is, okay? And not what uh, people have but with colored glasses. Um, religion. Harboring criminals. Um, God never does this. We're new creatures. You commit something worthy of death. I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Hopefully you repent. But you still have a consequence to pay. You'll be put to death here, right? Okay? You don't just get to slide. Okay? Very, very important. Now, um, the commerce of Diana, again, was affected in Acts 19 because Paul preached and people quit buying their little idols. And you know, to a religious person, that is taboo. You go someplace in Mexico, they'll kill you. Okay, you're an ex-Catholic, you know. You kiss your scapular. You kiss your rosary. You kiss 
whatever you feel is a medium. And then you have the nerve to put your finger in that dirty water. Don't, it shouldn't say holy water. It's dirty water. Everybody stick their finger in there. Nothing holy about it. But all this stuff is mixed in. You want to kiss somebody, you kiss Jesus Christ. You be devoted to him, not idols. That's idolatry, and God hates idolatry. Okay? You can't mix light with darkness. Impossible. So this is the historical information about Ephesus to give you the background so we'll better understand the message. The message begins in verse 1 here. You have the proclamation to Ephesus. The identity of the recipient of the letter is to the angel of Ephesus. Now, we've gone through this before, especially in the first two messages. The word angel, angelon, messenger, envoy. Uh, is it sent to an angel? Is it sent to a man? Well, certainly we see that the preachers were men, not angels. 186 times in the New Testament it appears. 76 of them are found in the book of Revelation. The majority of them are angels, but the context is going to determine which one is which. Here it has to be men, because men are the ones who preach, men are the ones who pastor, not angels. Okay? And um, the name of the church, Ephesus, again, means desirable, as we've noted. Okay? Desirable to God. And the word church is ecclesia. It's almost the same as the word in Spanish, iglesia. Ek, out, kaleo, to call. We've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. We're not the same. We understand that Christ died for us. We understand that no longer can we live to ourselves. We understand that he's forgiven our sins. We understand that we don't submit ourselves to anything that's not biblical. We run everything through the scriptures. The church is not the building. You are the church. I am the church. When Jesus returns for his church in the rapture, the people are going up, not the stinking buildings. They can have the building. Listen, when the rapture happens, people are going to be very happy. They're going to have a lot of goodies left behind. The church was an evangelizing church, notice. And without doubt, it could have been one of the biggest. But that's not necessarily true. Okay? But it is true for the last days. The churches that are growing in the last days. And Jesus said, the mustard seed will be those who are not following Jesus. Those who are compromising the word of God. They're the ones that are going to grow. As you look at the emerging, look at the seeker friendly. You see them growing at least in bounds. Why? Because you don't deal with sin. You don't deal with this. You don't deal with that. Very friendly, very non-threatening, very politically correct. So you have pastors cussing from the pulpit. You have pastors drinking with their elders, having beer bashes. My Lord, if there's cussing and drinking from the pulpit, what's going on in the pew? That's what I used to do. And don't sit so smug you did too. Don't call yourself a Christian. You're still living like a pagan. Woe to you if you're up front and doing that. It's amazing to me. The church has lost the fear of God. The church had an excellent group of teachers. You had Paul, Timothy. When John gets back, John's going to pastor it. And then you have Polycarp. Four incredible teachers. And yet he's going to charge them with something. So you can go to a good church that teaches you, but the problem is you. You listen, nothing goes in. Everything goes out. You're not a doer. You love listening, but that's as far as it goes. Or you started well, now you've deviated. This church occupies the history point of from 30 to 100 A.D., the apostolic church. It's the first. 
And the church represents the first generation church that is moving on to a second generation. That's always a danger. You who are born again as adults, your children are the second generation. Danger is your children. You know where you were saved from. You have passion for the Lord. But are you communicating that to your children? Because they can be church mouses and not really know about the power of God. That's always the danger. Now notice that the command is to write. It's repeated to every church. It's an imperative command. So every church gets the message and all the messages in the book of Revelation. Now notice the identity of the writer is Jesus Christ. So the words are the words of Jesus, not John's. These things says. So the chain of command we got in chapter 1, verse 1. God the Father to the Son, to the angel, to John, to us. Chain of command. Chapter 1, verse 3. The blessing is the one who reads the book of Revelation. So don't let nobody tell you that you're not old enough in the Lord to read and to study the book of Revelation. That's a lie out of hell. The seven messages are to be sent to the seven churches we have been told in chapter 1, verse 11, and then the entire book. In chapter 1, verse 19, the division is given to us to make sure we don't mess nothing up. God gives us the interpretation to everything, as we'll see. God gives us the, the table of contents because we would have messed this book up royally. Even as what he did, people still mess it up. It's the easiest book to study and to understand. I'm not saying we understand everything, but it's the easiest to study and understand because the table of context and the interpretations are given to us everything. Now, notice two characteristics identify Jesus here. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That goes back to chapter 1, verse 16. All the identities of Jesus come out of chapter 1. So we're not left to our subjective interpretation. The right hand speaks of authority and power and rule. The mystery of the seven stars, notice again, is explained to us by Jesus in chapter 1, verse 20. The angels are the seven churches, so we're not left to our own. The word holds, when used in the genitive case, the Greek scholar Stalas expressed a part of the whole you are holding. But in the accusative, as it is here, it means that the whole object is being gripped in this context. The church is to be under his control. The church does not belong to me, does not belong to you, does not belong to any pastor, nothing. The problem today is too many pastors think the church belongs to them. The people belong to them. The checkbook belongs to them. God help them. We are stewards and we're going to have to get an account for everything we do. With you, to you, and for you. Next, he says, he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamb stands. The activity of walking speaks of observation, penetrating awareness of all that goes on. Nothing is hidden from him. So we, when we go to prayer, we think we have to give God information. He doesn't need our information. None at all. Jesus is the risen Christ in the midst of the seven lamb stands and the high priest of heaven. Revelation 1, 12 through 14 told us. This is the one. Don't lose sight of that as we've already studied that. This is the one who's giving the messages now to the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, Revelation 1.20. We can't mess up if we stick to what has been revealed to us. He is the chief shepherd. He is the head of the Christ, head of the church, Christ himself. And he is the one who has bound and defeated the gates, the authority of hell. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them, Matthew 15.20. I don't care what you say about yourself. I don't care if you tell me you're a Christian. Let me look at you. Let me see your life. Let me see how you talk. Let me see what you talk about. 
I'll tell you if you're a Christian. The risen Lord is coming. That's the message of chapter 1. He's glorified. He's ruling. He's waiting to come back again. Are you waiting for him? Are you expecting him? Right now would be a great time. But that's my selfishness. There's a lot of people who can still be saved. But one day God is going to close it. So the proclamation to Ephesus here. Now, thirdly, you have the commendation now to Ephesus. They were doing some good stuff. Verse 2 and 3 and 6. In verse 2, Jesus knew what they were doing in the present and what they had done in the past. Nothing again escapes him. The word to know, it means intuitive intellectual knowledge, to understand and to perceive. The word works refers to that which they had been occupied in and were undertaking to do. Jesus used the same word, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew five sixteen. Same word. And the word labor, it refers to their passion and their toil to the point of exhaustion, passion. Do you have passion for the Lord and the things of God? If you do, it's because that's your priority, the kingdom of God. And you're so in love with the Lord that we're going to see here. Their patience refers to their endurance, their attitude of commitment, their consistency despite the exhaustive toil. Now, we get tired in the work at times, but we never get tired of the work. There's a big difference. Perfect illustration. We'll clear it all up. Mommies with their kids. You just find any young mommy and you follow around for one day, man. Just for one day. Three or four kids. By the end of the day, you'll say, I'll work two or three jobs if I have to. (laughs) No one compete with moms. Moms are the greatest things. Now when you have godly moms... Ooh, they are dangerous. <laughs> Their ability to bear those who are evil was noted. They could not bear them. That's good quality. It means to receive, to tolerate, to support evil people. So much of the church is tolerating receiving so much evil today. Thousands of people accept the teaching that Jesus Christ went down to hell to pay the atonement, finish the atonement, and pay the debt to Satan by the positive confession people. Fred Price, Copeland Company, and all the boys. Blasphemous. To believe what Rob Bell says that everybody is saved at the end. Love wins out at the end. To believe what McLaren teaches about a Christian and Christianity is blasphemous. And yet thousands of people who call themselves Christians are following these men, their, their philosophies, their movements. The word for evil refers to that which is good for nothing, for what they should be good for. The perfect example would be a soldier who is a coward or a teacher who is a deceiver. They were prepared But they were good for nothing in what they were prepared to do good. These are believers. Unless you want to accuse Jesus of speaking to non-believers about the responsibility he's given to believers. Which way you want it? Now, if you're a Calvinist, you're going to have some problem with us through this series. (laughs) Can't get away from it. Notice their commitment was to always test those 
who say they were apostles. The word test simply means to scrutinize, to discipline at times. In 1 John 4.1, you test the spirits. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Corinthians 13.5, through the motive of love, always. There were requirements for apostles, as you know, signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12.12, Hebrews 2.4. The early church had the dedicate, the teachings of the apostles. And they laid certain things down because there were a lot of itinerant pastors, uh, apostles, and so-called prophets going about. And... um. And they would come in and rip off people. So uh, some of the things I've given to you before, uh, a few of them was that if you came in and said you were a, a prophet or an apostle and you declared, you know, God says the Lord, um, you're supposed to have a feast tonight while I'm here. They would go along, we'll have a feast, but you can't eat of it. Okay? And if they ask for money, for sure, kick them out. What does that say about all radio programs? What does that say to the television ministers that beg and beg and beg? What does that say to ministries that spend so much time harboring and hammering people for money with their funds and their programs? We tell people how, what a great God we have, how powerful He is, how good He is. And then we say, He's broke. Really? My guy's not broke. We take an offering on Sunday. I'm not speaking against it. We do it nonchalant. We do it as easy as possible. We don't make you cry. We don't tell you sad stories. We don't give you programs. We don't tell you how bad we have it. We don't tell you anything. We teach you the word of God. And when God doesn't provide, I'll close the doors and go sit somewhere and serve the Lord. I have no problem with that. Real simple. Anybody ever here hammers you for money here, you come and talk to me. And if it hasn't from the pulpit, get up and walk out. Are we clear on that? Real simple. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, where God guides, he provides. I still live by that. I'll die with that philosophy. Now, the Calvaries aren't going that way. They're being corrupted like everybody else. It didn't take long. He died two years ago, October the 3rd on my son's birthday. Immediately, things changed. New captain at the helm. Different direction. So, fungus among us, like I've told you. Being a poor city had many deceivers. Why? Because in poor cities you have people coming in, right? Much corruption, everything else. You go to San Pedro, you go to San Diego, poor city. Sailors are out for a long time, they come in. There's prostitution, there's drugs, there's... You name it, okay? Corruption. This is Ephesus. It's an incredible, luxurious port. The form of the word liars here appears two other times in Acts 6.13 and Revelation 21.8. Not a liar will enter the kingdom of God. And you'd be surprised how many pastors are liars from the pulpit. I don't know what they're going to do with that. Embellishing their testimony more and more. Some guys that for the past 40 years, I've listened to them. They, they speak evangelistically about themselves. Their testimony keeps growing. Amazing to me. People always ask me because of my brother. They say, what was your life like? I said, you're my brother? Same thing. Okay, now, what can I do for you? I want to focus on Jesus, not me. Okay? I'm not the important one. You, got, you ladies were here for the lady on Tuesday in prison? Over in Iran? 
Did she spend a whole hour talking about imprisonment? Didn't even mention it. Just barely. Those that really suffer, they don't talk about it. Not like the church here in the United States. We, we put a great testimony and everybody follows the man in the testimony. Rather than Jesus Christ. God help us. There's a place for testimony, but it's not supposed to be the heart of the ministry, ladies and gentlemen. And if it is, it's absolutely anathema. Accursed. And so, whatever is done in secret, God knows. Everything's open to him. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew what they had done was out of right motive. So they're commended. For his name's sake, they had persevered. For his name's sake, they had been patience. They had labored to the point of exhaustion. They had um, not become weary. And there's a play on words here between this verse and the previous one. They were able to bear the exhaustive toil of ministry in his name while not able to bear those who were evil. That is so good. So many people are, are, are commended for their intellectual abilities and, and able to market things and to organize people and to, and to gather an audience. But what's the content? What, is this, the, 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 what are you giving out? Is it biblical or is it not? We're, we're, we've settled for motivational speaking and for, as I said, great testimonies. Weary, it means to faint in the past to the present. It's the perfect tense. They were not faint-hearted to faint in the work. Why? Because what they were doing, they were doing out of love for Jesus. Let me tell you, if you do anything apart from love, they'll come upon you and say, you know what? I am tired of this. I am not doing this anymore. Because you will be loving yourself more than others. It just happens. Look at 6. Jesus knew what they hated. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, there are many different views about Nicolaitans, but there really is not a lot of information about them. There's a lot of suggestions, opinions. Um, but the best way is to take the word. It's made up of two words. Uh, Nikoa, which means to conquer. You get uh, a different form. Nike, victor, uh, from, from the tennis shoes, victorious. So be a victor. And then... Um, uh, Laos, and you, you've ever heard of Laos, Vietnam? Uh, it's called the people, okay? So you put them together, it's uh, the conquering of the people. So it's believed it's some hierarchy that was set over the people, such as priests and cardinals and pigeons, pigeons, bishops and popes, pigeons too, and, uh, and robbing people of their spiritual relationship with the Lord. You want to destroy Christianity? Do what Constantine did in 312, after 312. He took Christianity, he forced everybody to become a Christian, stop persecution, and made it a state church. You kill it. Crazy. Lording over the people. Nobody lords over the people of God. Jesus the head of the church. Peter speaks in 1 Peter 5, shepherds, shepherd the flock of God, not by constraint, not for filthy lucre, money, but right of your mind. And the chief shepherd will reward you when he comes back. You do not belong to me. That one of you would sit, come here on Sunday morning, Sunday night, or anywhere and sit to, li- be, to listen to what I have to say and to instruct the word of God. I am highly privileged if one of you shows up. 
You understand that? We always turn it around. Oh, you know, we're so lucky we get to hear him. Are you kidding me? Listen, we are nothing but dirt and mostly air and water. If you add a little more water, we become a big mud ball. That's all we are. Okay? Don't be impressed with yourself so much. Some believe that Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch, perhaps, is in reference. Irania tells us that, but we're not sure. He uh, was alive in 31 AD. This is 95 AD, so we're not sure. But certainly we can understand what the problem was with uh, the word. Now, the heresy of John's day, as you know, was identified as Gnosticism. It's the end of the, almost the first century. The second century, Gnosticism developed completely. And First John, if you were with us, you understand this. Remember, the Gnostics had different schools of thought. But they basically taught that matter was evil and spirit was good. So God could not have a body because body is evil and spirit is good. So he can't join them. So the Cerinthian um, Gnostics said, well, the baptism of Jesus... Uh, the deity of Jesus came upon him then and had left him prior to his, the cross, his death, so therefore you only have a man dying. How interesting. And then the Docetus Gnostics, the, from the word Docetus to seem, said that he didn't even leave footprints when he walked on sand. So matter, evil, spirit, good. So therefore, as a Gnostic, the spark in you, the God in you, does that sound familiar? New Age and everything else? Oprah? And so you can, you can enjoy the beer and the chicks and everything else because it doesn't affect your spirit. Boy, they were fast-growing churches. Emerging, seeker-friendly, beer bashes, cussing, community. Really? Wow. Nothing new, is there? The Lord declared that they at Ephesus hated the very thing he hated. That's good. You want to make sure you hate the things that God hates. You not only want to be known for who your friends are. Let me give you a better one. They will learn more about you if they know who your enemies are. Those that compromise, those that don't want to make a difference between objective truth of the Bible. If they're your enemies, that's good. And so it should be. It's a good quality, commendable. The heretic sect was a real danger to the church. This is not hypothetical here. In fact, um, the sect was opposed to the church of Ephesus right there in verse 6. And um, in chapter 2, verse 15, for the church of Pergamos, he'll repeat it again. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. But as you look at the progression of the messages, it, it keeps more compromise. It's progressive. Compromise is progressive and it's downward all the time. So this was the commendation to Ephesus. We want to learn from this. We want, we want to hold this. But then you have the condemnation in verse 4. The church of Ephesus had left their first love. The Greek literally says, Your first love you have left to depart, to go or send away by willful abandonment. 
Now, if you're a Calvinist, don't put a twist on it like Democrats or like liberal progressives. This is what he's saying. God is accusing them. No one falls out of agape love. This is the word, God's love. They choose to leave their love. You can fall out of lust, but not out of love. You grow in love. Isaiah put it this way. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 29, 13. Jesus quoted in Matthew 15, 7 through 8. Every person knows what it is to be infatuated or to fall in love for the first time. It is cloud nine. It is heaven. God has made us for this stuff. The problem is we have fallen nature. And problems come with that. There's a rush of emotions and feelings for the other person. There's an excitement to see them, to be with them, to spend time with them. Think of what you did before you got married to your wife. You call her that day. Say, hey, listen, can we spend some time? No, I got to go to the mall because I got to do this. You go, oh, it's okay. I'll go with you. <laughs> now your wife says, hey, hon, I got to go to the mall. You want to go? No. <laughs> Are you crazy? What happened? Oh, you're married now. Ah, I see. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go all the time. But if you love someone, you want to spend time with them. You want to be there, right? Then one day, there's a change of heart. The event does not come in one day, one night, ladies and gentlemen. It is a process. The failure to cultivate one's relationship gives way to one's selfishness and other rivals. Be careful of that sweet wiggly thing that tells you you look like um, Rocky. <laughs> which is really an insult. <laughs> the failure to maintain one's passion brings one to a place of indifference and unappreciativeness of valuing the one that God has given to you. Shame on us. Finally, there's a looking and ultimately there's a longing for another. One step at a time. Nobody leaves their wife or husband or commits adultery because they get up that morning and say, I'm going to do it. It's a very progressive thing. If you don't mark those checkpoints, you will end up there. The context is your love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you two timing the Lord? A phrase in the 60s. Two girlfriends at the same time. Two boyfriends at the same time. Jesus said, You can't have two masters. You love the one, hate the other. Paul's first prayer to the Ephesians was that they would be grounded and rooted in love, that they might comprehend with all the saints the width, the length, the height of Christ's love, which surpasses all understanding. Ephesians 3 17 through 19. If you are not in love with Jesus and you don't cultivate that love with Jesus, you're a dead person. You will leave your first love. You will get wandering eyes. 
that sweet wiggly thing will grab you by the throat and destroy you. A guy that is so attentive to you while your husband isn't. And he tells you what a great, beautiful person you are. Hmm. The church of Ephesus was about 30 years old at the time of John's letter. The birth of the church of Ephesus is usually credited to Paul. And he was the first pastor, but really Priscilla and Aquila were left there and they started in Acts 18. Apollos later came to Ephesus, you know, and he was a mighty man from Alexandria, eloquent and mighty in the scripture. But he did only knew the baptism of John, so they, Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and taught him the more accurate way. And then Paul later remained in Ephesus, um, as you know, and he uh, pastored there for three years, leaving um, um, Ephesus later on. But at this point, 30 years has passed. Incredible pastors, Paul, Timothy, John is going to be there, then Polycarp. Yet their passion, fervency, and vision had waned, even though they were doing many work. They were commendable things. The past and great work. was commendable, but they had lost their passion for the Lord. Now, instead of being out of love, it was out of duty, which is always a horrible thing. When you feel that you have to do what you do for your wife or your husband out of duty, it is dark, dark day. Listen, when marriage is good, it is so good you want to lick your fingers. When it's bad, no way. So you want to fix it as soon as you can. Gentlemen, you must cultivate your love for your wife. Everything will be there to crowd it out. And if you don't, you will be the biggest loser in the end. One of these days, your kids are going to be gone. And then you tell me what you have. Don't be a fool. God gave you your wife, the first priority. You never put your children above her. And we've seen through the years. I've said people sitting right where you are. They're nodding just like you. Amen, amen, brother. Say it. (laughs) But their lives are destroyed today. Their children destroyed. Very important. The church at Ephesus was the second generation church. Here's the problem. Pastor Chuck used to say that it rarely goes to the second generation. And it didn't take long to find out as soon as he died that it wasn't going to continue the same way as the movement. The average church in America will shock you. It's 20 to 50 people. Let's double it. 40 to 100. In the latter days, the ones that are going to grow are the ones with big buzzers, the mustard seed. Evil. Compromising. Laodicean, as we'll see. People, pastors, and elders can become complacent and different and comfortable. Paul had commended the church of Ephesus out of love 30 years prior. Now, the excitement, the freshness, the fervency, their love had dissipated, grown cold. How's your love for the Lord? And by the way, gentlemen, if you're going to love your wife, it's because you love the Lord. 
Because if I love my wife straight across, she'll get old on me. Because we're always looking for an ideal. Our list can't be met. And of course, she's lucky she has me, right? <laughs> but if I love the Lord and I keep my eyes on the Lord, then he clears up my eye vision. To let him see how fortunate I am, what a creep I am. Very, very important. The experience was nothing new, but only a tragic repetition here. The second generation that went to the land, God gave them the land. They forgot about it. They turned their back on God. They made compromises. God judged them. Jeremiah put it this way. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry to the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord uh, Yahweh, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. Jeremiah 2, 1 and 2. That, those early days that you're married and you're, oh, yeah, look all good, this and that. What happened? We don't obey. We don't abide. We don't, we don't cultivate. We don't get in the world. We don't pray. We don't, we don't repent. We don't act, say, I'm sorry. We don't say, Lord, help me. Lord, please. And, and, and we just keep going off, off, off. God's always good to knock on our door, to convict us, to bring us back. Gives us shepherds, gives us friends, gives us loved ones to encourage one another, to confront one another. Very important. This was the proclamation or the condemnation to, to Ephesus. This is a condemnation. Great church in some aspect, but this, this is it. You have left your first... Now listen, if you leave your first love, everything's going to go. Everything. Now it's duty. And you know duty. Mm-mm. Doesn't last long. When passion is gone, duty goes by the wayside. Notice, fourthly, or fifthly, here you have the exhortation, verse 5. The church is given the biblical counsel to get back on track. They were to remember from where they had fallen. That's great. Remember simply means to recollect the high position of love and passion of love. You're walking with the Lord. A durative present imperative indicating a continuous attitude. Always remember, remember, remember. That's why we get in trouble. We, we, we forget the past. That's why our nation's in trouble. We haven't remembered our history, our forefathers, our constitution. That we came out of, from Europe because the king was a tyrant. Now we have another king's a tyrant. We have forgotten. And those... Wise concerning evil keep people from finding out about it. So you have to rewrite history. You have to change the focus. They have progressively walked away from their love with the Lord. No longer there. Going through the motions without the emotions. That's that many marriages are like that. That's dead. That's miserable. Now you don't live by feelings. Sometimes you're just going to feel bad. Sometimes things happen. You have to work through those things. You have to put your emotions aside. You have to deal with the Word of God. We, we never have ever mentioned divorce as, as a couple, Trudy and I. Now, murder, that's a different thing. But <laughs> divorce, no. 
You work through things. You don't abuse each other. You don't threaten each other. But you don't continue to be irresponsible to one another. Make it make this very clear in your mind and in your heart. A wife can only put up with so much. A husband can only put up so much for so long. And we always push it to the limit. God has made us one in Him. You leave that first love, that vertical axis, you are dead. It's just a matter of time. Notice, the things they used to do for Christ were out of love, but now, mere duty, as I said. And so, look at the word now, they were to repent. The word repent, as you know, is a change of mind with a change of heart. Uh, It's an imperative command, a decisive break. You realize you're wrong, you acknowledge your error, and and that's how you see repentance, okay? I'm going to repeat it so you understand that. You You acknowledge your sin, you confess your sin, you abandon your sin, and whenever possible, you make restitution of your sin. When it's possible, it's not always wise. Things happen before your life, you know, don't go banging on doors seeking your old boyfriend and girlfriend get it right. They're married, get out of the way, don't even go back, all right? But whenever you find somebody, you run into somebody from the past and you're able to get it right, get it right. Just a few months back, I ran into somebody, I went out and I said, listen, briefly forgive me for the stuff in the world. I said, no problem. So when I run into people, I do that still. But you got to be careful on that stuff. It's not always the wisest, okay? And so, um, repentance. We live a life of repentance. If you don't live a life of repentance, then you're not abiding in Christ Jesus, okay? Every day we sin. Every day we blow it. They were to repeat their first works. Notice next. This is the evidence of genuine repentance. Otherwise, repentance is simply regret. That brings forth death in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. This is the work that is done out of love, not mere namesake, out of duty. God, I signed up for the children. I got to go today. Don't come. Oh, I wrote that check. I know I shouldn't have written a sword. You shouldn't have written it. Don't pollute our offering. What you do, you do for love, ladies and gentlemen. I've never manipulated, I never will. What you do, you don't do for me or to me. You do it to the Lord and for the Lord. People argue about predestination, free will. I'm not going to get sidetracked, get the series on predestination, free will. All I can tell you is God didn't predestine you to hell. You go to hell on your own invitation. You choose to go there. Now notice the church is warned about the consequence if they do not obey the counsel and really repent. So there's consequences. The consequences would affect the assembly as a church body. Notice careful. Their influence would diminish. Their light would go out. Jesus would remove the lampstand from its place Rejected by the Lord, no longer being his church. The consequence would be devastating to move her place as part of the Lord's church. 
to cease from being a vessel of Jesus. The church will never be destroyed through persecution. It will grow. But a loveless church, Christ himself will remove it. Are we clear on that? These are the words of Jesus. Do not twist it. Do not take the sting out of these consequences. The consequences are sure unless they repent. Notice, repentance is the acknowledgement, the confession, the abandonment, and restitution when necessary. I repeat it again. This was the only way they could be accepted by Jesus as true to him and true to their name, desirable, only through repentance. So we live a life of repentance. This was the exhortation to the Ephesians, the church of Ephesus. Notice lastly, you have the application in verse 7. The declaration is an invitation for anyone. There must be a willingness to listen. There is a sense of responsibility for hearing. An accountability having heard. And a culpability of every person who does not listen. The word is repeated by Jesus. He who has an ear in the gospels. And the church is here. The spirit says he who has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the church is plural. You find it all over the gospels. Accountability. Responsibility. You as a parent. You hold your children responsible. You make a deal with someone. You hold them responsible. The declaration notice is an invitation to obey what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the context. A cool, endowed with the faculty to hear. You're not deaf. We get the acute hearing, sensitive, keen hearing. Literally, let him act, actually and effectively hear the error's tense. So the obedience is not limited to the message to the church of Ephesus, but to all seven messages in the entire book of Revelation. The word churches, again, is plural. And the spirit of the speaker is the spirit of Jesus Christ here. The one who sent the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now notice the declaration is an invitation with promise of reward. The one to receive the reward is the overcomer. Very clear. It is in the present participle, timeless. He has no, it has no object, as the Greek scholar Lenski says, and no one should add to it. Um, and it is the faith of the Christian that overcomes the world. First John 5, 4 through 5. Our faith. If you tell me you have faith, it points you back to the revelation of God. Faith is not an emotion, not a feeling. Oh, I really believe, believe, believe. Not mine over matter. If I have biblical faith, then I'm, I'm living and believing what the word of God says. It's the word of God. That's how I know my faith is biblical. It takes me back to the word of God. The person who will reward is Jesus. I, the Lord personally, will give of the tree of life to the overcomer. The tree of life here, the uh, garden of Eden, chapter 2, verse 9. Remember, that's where it all happened. God booted him out, put a cherub at the Door of the garden, Genesis 3.24. Lest Adam and Eve would go back in in a fallen state and eat of the tree of life and then would have lived eternally in a fallen state and redemption not being able to be done. So it wasn't castigation, it was protection when he put a flaming cherub there until Christ come and we partook of the tree of life. Eternal life has to do with God-like life, first of all. Second of all, 
life that never ends in time. And the tree is seen in the New, in the new Jerusalem uh, later on, uh, on both sides of the river. Uh, the tree bears fruits, 12 months of the, for the healing of the nations in Revelation 22, verse 2 and 14. Uh, the tree is in the paradise of God, notice. And the word paradise, as you know, has Persian origin. Um, and among the Persians, there was a, a, a grand enclosure, a preserve with water and gardens and a shady uh, atmosphere. And there was even animals for personal hunting by the king. And Septuagint is used for Genesis 2, 8 through 9 of Genesis, the garden. The place of privilege where the king would invite somebody and they would walk with, with the king and talk with the king and they would go hunting with the king. It was an exclusive place. Now, we know the word paradise. Jesus told us about it in Luke 16 with rich man Lazarus. It was a place where the men of faith died and they went in comfort, the bosom of Abraham. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4, he was caught up to the third heaven, the paradise. So it has this whole connotation of the place where God is of communion, of fellowship, of, of what He has for us. This is what God intended. That's why God has sent His Son to redeem us, to save us. If, if we had only this life to live, ladies and gentlemen, all you had to do is see how much realty you could, you could um, accumulate in cars and money and pleasures and how many knots you can get on your belt, how many women you can have sex with and how many men you, you've, had, um, you've been married to and everything else. What a sad commentary. And then we just die? My Lord! God wants to fellowship with you for eternity. Paradise represents the presence of God and eternal oneness and fellowship with God. This was the application to the Ephesians. Man. The bee is more honored than other animals. Not because she labors. But because she labors for others. That's what God honors. Joy. Jesus, others, you last. We love teaching our children. But God loves teaching his children too. <laughs> no different. You want to be desirable to God and honored? Remember your first love. Repent from leaving your first love. And redo the works of your first love. Simple. The entire message of the church of Ephesus is a call to return to their first love. It's like a parable. Central message. Bam. There's the punchline. You can do all kinds of stuff. You might be good neighbor Sam. You might be the greatest provider. You may be the best mommy. But if you have left your first love... It's just a matter of time before everything else goes by the wayside. The message speaks of a local church in John's day. The message speaks of a period of history, 30 to 100 AD. The message speaks of a type of church that will exist through the church age from Pentecost to the rapture or even perhaps even to the tribulation. And the message speaks of a type of Christian in every church. You get to take the exam and correct your own paper. God already knows. He wants to make sure you know where you stand. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. 
Lord, we love you. We pray that you continue to deal with our hearts as we draw closer to you, that your love and your grace be the only thing we stand on, Lord. I pray for every person here. Your hand be upon us, Lord. If someone doesn't know you, Lord, you would just knock on the door of their heart, that they would bow their hearts to you, Lord, and call upon your name. If you believe what I've said, then the Bible says that you can be saved. Jesus is here to forgive you, to make you his child by grace through faith. You might be in the balcony, the floor, or maybe over the internet. It's called repentance. A change of mind with a change of heart. If you want to be born again, you can do it right now, right where you sit. This is your prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to walk you through the...